Let's ask God to help us now with his word. Our gracious our Heavenly Father, we pray in the richness of our lives uh, that you would give us space to see and to know again uh, the wonder of what we celebrate today, that the eternal word, your Son, has become flesh and come to dwell amongst us and that we see in him grace and truth, your grace and truth, grace that can give us new life, truth that allows us to relate to you and to live before you. Now, Father, please open up our hearts to your word this morning that we might see your glory in the face of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, one of the things that keeps me coming back to the Christmas story is the difference, and you probably gathered this from the children's talk, the difference between appearance and reality, the way things seem to be and the way things are. Because on the surface, the Christmas story appears pretty ordinary, doesn't it? A tradie and his teenage fiancée falling pregnant before they get married, not an unfamiliar story. An ordinary working couple whose lives can be disrupted by the decisions of the powerful they have no say in. Let's face it, everyone who tried to get married in lockdown knows what that's like. But in this case, of course, the result is that they're away from home when their baby arrives trying to make do with what they have with that manger. Oh, yeah, read on in the story and you'll find a couple living out their lives under corrupt and violent local rulers like Herod the Great. And in the history of the world, there's sadly nothing particularly special about that either. It all appears pretty ordinary. And as what's now a 2,000-year-old story, the Christmas story can also appear to be a story not just from the past, but only about the past. A time of shepherds on hillsides and babies in mangers that is a time of labour exploitation and extremely poor obstetric practices. A story about back then once upon a time, not a story that involves us. But the gospel tells us the reality is completely different from the appearance. That this baby is like no other baby, conceived by the Spirit, Emmanuel, God with us. That in this baby, Jesus, God, God the Son, the eternal word who is with God and is God, has entered his own creation. A baby whose birth matters to the whole world and as a sign of that, God draws wise men from the east to worship him. A baby who we're told will save, that is rescue, his people from the consequences of humanity's sin. That is rescue people from the consequences of our rebellion against the living God from the consequences of our substituting other gods in God's place, giving to other things and beings like money or pleasure or ideology, our loyalty and love, save us from the consequences of our determination to ignore what God has said, to keep him out of our lives and just living to please ourselves in God's world. A determination that brings death to us and our planet. So there's the appearance, so ordinary, in fact, 
so poor, humble, inconsequential, just another child of the masses, children that can be slaughtered without real consequence, as the story tells us Herod does, and human powers have done at two or twenty throughout the centuries, whether in the trenches of Flanders or the cities of Ukraine. There's the appearance and the claimed reality so glorious and consequential. The God of all creation, the word through whom all things were made, coming into his creation to restore it, to set it right, to save. Now, how can there be this gap between appearance and reality at Jesus' birth? Well, it's because this is not just a human story, not just the story of Joseph and Mary and their kid, but it's actually the story of God, our creator, Father, Son and Spirit. And God doesn't need the visible trappings of human power and riches to be God. He doesn't have to do things the way we would or the way we think he should. He doesn't need our affirmation or approval or permission to act. He does what he pleases and nothing is impossible for him and it pleases God that God the Son embraced the frailty of a baby, the humility of being born in a stable. And our God is so wise and so mighty that in that embrace he is no less God. The eternal word taking on our flesh, doing what no human can do, bridging the divide, the great gulf between heaven and earth, creator and creature, and not temporarily and not just in appearance, but in reality, in substance and forever. For if the gospel word, the word spoken by the angels is true, with the birth of Jesus something has happened in our world that is irreversible, something that matters for all time. Our humanity is forever united with God in the one person of the incarnate Son, Jesus. Jesus doesn't take on our humanity to later discard it doesn't morph after his time on earth into some other kind of being. And that is good. You see, we are assured in the Son becoming a man and in his presence with the Father that we humans are never forgotten, are always known to him. The fate of our race is now always central to God's plans. Oh, and we're assured that our race has a saviour, that we can be saved as we are, embodied creatures, individuals. We don't have to stop being humans to be saved. And we have an always saviour, for the incarnate son is always able to sympathise with our embodied life, always in heaven to take up the case of his people. And he can bring us embodied individuals into the presence of God just as he has brought our humanity into God's presence in himself. And that gives us great hope, that resurrection hope that we will live raised in the presence of God. And despite the appearance of his birth, the subsequent life of Jesus supports this extraordinary claim that Jesus is God with us, come into our world to make things right, to save. If you were to read on in the Gospels, Matthew or Luke, any of them, those eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, you see Jesus making things right, making things good. So he cleanses lepers, restoring them to family and community. 
He heals a soldier's son with a word, sparing him the grief all parents dread. He casts out the demons that torment and brings wholeness to fractured lives. He gives sight to the blind, feeds with five loaves and two small fish, 5,000 people. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. See, illness, enslaving evil, hunger and want, death, all those things that oppress us, that burden our lives and our hearts, Jesus deals with, rescues people from. And Jesus makes claims that only the Son of God, who is God, can make. He says he can forgive sins. And to demonstrate his authority to do that, he makes a paralysed man walk. He says he can give rest to the soul, relieve the impossible burden of trying to gain God's favour by keeping rules. He says he can give eternal life to those who follow him. But as you read the gospel story, what seems so promising, this possibility that Jesus is God with us, that his reality is what was declared by God's word despite his humble appearance, that possibility is shattered in the gospel story by Jesus' death. Now imagine you were somebody who'd followed Jesus. You'd been attracted by what Jesus had done. You'd started to hope he really was the one. Well, you'd be devastated, wouldn't you, by Jesus' crucifixion, maybe even ashamed of putting your hope in him. But again, in the crucifixion, there's this difference between appearance and reality. The appearance of the crucifixion is that Jesus is just a criminal, a failure, someone in his nakedness on the cross clothed with shame the shame of being abandoned by his followers, betrayed by one of his closest companions, denied by another, the shame of being handed over by his own people to ruthless foreigners, spat upon, mocked, condemned by the mob, humiliated, the shame of appearing to have been abandoned by God, the God in whom he trusted. It's utter failure, isn't it, for anyone? let alone one who claimed to be the Son of God, God with us. Any promises he made on the cross, they're exposed as empty. Any claim to being a saviour shown to be boastful, deluded lies, for the dead save no one. And you would expect Jesus, wouldn't you, to be forgotten, along with the thousands of others crucified by by the Romans in a show of their power, just dust under their boots, as they impose their rule on the world. That's the appearance of the crucifixion. But the reality? Well, the gospel claims that this death is the greatest victory, the greatest triumph known across the ages. You see, across history, every death-dealing conqueror, Alexander, Napoleon, every emperor, everyone who's claimed that power has in turn been conquered by death. Every liberator eventually imprisoned him or herself in the tomb. But Jesus, through death on the cross, has conquered death. And not just for himself, giving up his own freedom to the chains of death, he has liberated his own people from death forever. Jesus said of his death, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, that's himself, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom 
for many. Jesus is saying that dying in our place, our substitute, he pays the price of our freedom from death. He pays the price of our freedom from the penalty of our rebellion against God, of our enslavement to lies. And he destroys there the power of our enemy, the ancient serpent, the devil who enslaves all those who believe his lie and in the end, through that lie, delivers them to death. An early Christian, the author of Hebrews, linking Jesus' birth to his death, writes, since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood in common. Jesus also shared in these. That is, he took on our life. Why? So that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. The devil and his lies and the death they bring have no more power now over Jesus' people because of Jesus' death on the cross. There he achieved a liberation greater than the exodus, a freedom more enduring, a victory more final, for it is a victory over death and its causes that death itself cannot undo. There's the appearance of the cross, shame and failure, but there's the reality revealed by God's word, a glorious triumph. And what happened after Jesus' death supports the claim the gospel makes, the reality of the cross as saving victory that the gospel proclaims it to be. God raised Jesus from the dead to be witnessed alive by many. The Apostle Paul writes, I passed on to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. Notice Paul's confidence when he's writing this, probably 20, 25 years after Jesus' death. He's saying, you can see, you can talk to people who have seen Jesus alive from the dead. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. These witnesses, and there are many of them in many different contexts and places, saw the same Jesus who was dead and buried alive in the body in which he died. Not some kind of hallucination or dream. They ate with him, they spoke with him, they touched him alive from the dead. Eyewitness tests me many across the ages have found convincing and many find convincing today. So why this gap between appearance, the appearance of the cross and reality? It's because the story of Jesus is not just a human story. It's not just a story of a noble ethical teacher or prophet of liberation crushed by ruthless self-interested power, as some claim. Now it's the story of the living almighty God, the story of God with us, the story of God the Father sending God the Son into the world to save as he promised, to save by his death, to save people who don't deserve it because he loves. It's the story of God who has life in himself, of the Son of God who has life in himself, 
who can incarnate, taking on our flesh, die but not be held in death. In him, writes John at the beginning of the gospel, was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. The light of the life of the eternal word of the Son of God cannot be extinguished by us. And just as the Son of God taking on our flesh in the birth of Jesus is irreversible, the reality of what God has done in the appearance of defeat on the cross is irreversible. Jesus is now Lord with all authority. There's no stripping him of that authority that's possible. He lives with a deathless life. There's no putting him back in the grave. He reigns with none to rival him or prevent him keeping his promises. And think about how good that is. It's good in itself, isn't it? It's good that the one who heals, not wounds, gives life, not takes it, speaks the truth, not spins a lie. One who associates with the humble and poor, not with the proud and rich, who's patient and kind and forgiving with slow-witted, faltering followers. It's good that he rules with all authority, not a Caesar or a Biden or a Putin or a Z. It's good in itself that Jesus, born in a stable, killed on a cross, reigns. And it's good in its outcome. For Jesus lives with authority to forgive and to judge, lives to keep his promises to ordinary, frail, mortal sinners like us. Promises, which are wonderful, promises of being spared judgment. This is what Jesus said, Anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Our promises of life-giving direction now that allows us to walk safely and securely. I am the light of the world, says Jesus. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And yes, in a world full of death, promises of resurrection to eternal life. I am the resurrection and the life, says our Lord. The one who believes in me, even if she or he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. What happens in the past doesn't just concern the past. Past events establish present realities, don't they? The federal election was in the past, but it's established our present government If you're married, your proposal or your acceptance of it was in the past, but it has determined your present state. The birth, death and resurrection of Jesus are past events that establish our present reality, irreversible events. Despite appearances, Jesus, born in the manger, is Lord. And I say despite appearances because many, perhaps even you, For you, the Christmas story, the Christian story, might appear just as a cultural echo of a more religious, even superstitious past, a recollection of childhood in a society that's matured, something tolerated in what's now called the holiday season, perhaps even wistfully remembered. But Christmas isn't seen as saying anything about our real world, not the coming of a king before whom all must bow. 
And the Christian faith in our increasingly aggressive secular society appears to many as something that's just done, has had its moment in the sun, but it's now fading, proclaimed to have no place in the future and its understanding of reality, no place in guiding decisions in the present. That's our present appearance, isn't it? But not the reality. For this is the story of God, the living God, Father, Son and Spirit, the Son who's entered our history as a baby in a manger, Jesus, God with us. And so the reality is different. The reality revealed by the gospel word is different to how things appear to many today. It's the reality revealed, say, in the story Jesus told in Matthew 13 of the farmer who sowed good seed in his field and then of an enemy who came that night and sowed weeds in the same field. There in that field, both the wheat and the weeds, those who believe in and those who reject Jesus, grow up together, says Jesus, until the harvest. The harvest which is the close of the age when, Jesus says, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. That's the reality. The wheat and the weeds growing up together until that day. Oh, it's the reality revealed in the book of Revelation where it's the Son who directs the course of human history, who can unseal the scroll in the hand of God that moves the course of the world to the revealing of the glory of the Son in his coming to judge the earth and save his people. You see, the reality is that God has not been marginalised or become inactive or been overwhelmed by our stubborn unbelief. No, it's he's patient and patiently pursuing his plan and purpose to save people from every tongue and nation through the good news, the gospel of his son Jesus, the good news that he, born in a manger, crucified on the cross, risen, is God with us, Christ the Lord, the Saviour today of all who believe in him. There's a gap between the appearance and the reality today. Again, because this is the story of God. And God doesn't have to do things the way we think he should. He doesn't need the affirmation or approval or permission of the powerful of this world to act. And he certainly doesn't need the trappings of human power or influence to accomplish his purpose through his word. And just as the incarnation is irreversible and the death and resurrection and exaltation of the Lord Jesus are irreversible, so this movement to final judgment and the glorification of the Son is irreversible. And again, that is good. Good for all creation. For the Son alone has the power to restore it, to set it free from its bondage to decay, to establish by his reign justice and righteousness on earth. But whether it's good for you depends on whether you choose to keep living in the world of appearances or to embrace instead the reality revealed in the gospel when the apostles echoing the angels declare the crucified Jesus is Lord with authority to judge and forgive. You see, 
you can choose in our society to stick with appearances and say, look, Jesus was just an ordinary kid with a rough start in life. Oh, and whether he was a martyr to a noble cause or a deceiver, who knows, he's dead and done with and I don't have to worry about it. You can stick with the appearance, although it doesn't seem to do justice to all the evidence, does it? I mean, would we today, for example, and millions in every corner of the earth and across the centuries <coughs> be celebrating his birthday if that was so, if Jesus was just another ordinary dead bloke? I mean, do we celebrate Alexander the Great's or Plato's or Einstein's or Nietzsche's birth? I mean, you can stick with the appearance and live in that greyer, sadder world, the world that you have closed to your creator, where the good are crushed, the powerful unaccountable, and we live without hope. For our only hope then's in ourselves and we all die. You can stick with appearance or we can live in reality, the reality revealed by the gospel. Live in reality by believing what the gospel claims for itself, that this is the story of the living God, your creator, the God with whom you need to find peace, the story of God with us coming, seeking us in love to save and rescue. You can live in that reality by responding to the living Lord Jesus come to save you in the way he says, with repentance and faith. That's life, repentance, changing your mind about who's in charge, about who speaks the truth, saying Jesus is in charge. He speaks the truth. I'm not in charge even of my own life. I'm not the ultimate judge of truth. And I've been wrong not to believe him and live by his teaching. Repentance and faith, believing he lives, believing his word, believing his promises, promises of life, and so calling out to him for the forgiveness and new life only he can give. We call that calling out prayer. And Jesus lives and he'll hear you, even if you find it weird to talk to someone you cannot see. Right? He lives, he hears, and he will do for you what he has promised. And then believing what he teaches is right and true and so resolving to live by his teaching. By repentance and faith in Jesus, our lives are then entwined in this better story, God's story, where God is and he cares, where he loves those who don't deserve his love, richly, generously, beyond reckoning in the death of his son, and he acts his way, not ours, a baby born in a manger, a king who conquers on a cross and now lives forever and gives eternal life to all who believe in him. The story whose ending you can be sure of, for it is the living God's story and he does all he says. Now, as I say this, I know some of you may just be sitting there puzzled by the questions the gospel raises with its contrast between Appearance and reality, maybe it's left you wondering, perhaps for the first time, why the birth of this baby 
of a teenage mother is celebrated? It's a good question. Why have the thousands crucified by the Romans? They were very practised at it. Why have the thousands crucified by the Romans? Has this one outdone every Roman, every Caesar in fame and influence? Puzzled by the thought that someone born in a stable 2,000 years ago can forgive you and give you eternal life, what no one else can give you. Now, if that's you, if you're puzzled, let me say look into the gospel story. There are books on the table to help you do that, and a good one to start with might be Rebecca McLaughlin's Is Christmas Unbelievable? It's a good book. Or you might find it easier to sit down with someone and have your questions about Christianity and the hope it gives answered. Well, there are invitations to a course that does that, that Andy will be running in February, Hope Explored on the Table. Take one. Or you might like to talk to someone today with your questions. But of course, I know that most of us are here this morning because we've already believed that Jesus is the Christ. In a world that appears determined to sideline Jesus, I want you to hear this morning that you need to keep living in reality, the reality revealed in the gospel. You see, I know that it can appear at at times that our lives, their griefs, their trials and joys are no different from our neighbours who don't yet believe in Jesus. That it can appear to make no difference whether you believe in Jesus or not to your life now, unless perhaps you found it makes a negative difference, makes your life harder. But the gospel says that all who believe in Jesus, the word become flesh, are now children of God, loved children of the Father, loved with a love from which death itself cannot separate us. Now that word is true and sure. And when appearances tempt you to doubt that, think of the manger, think of the cross, And remember, where it appears that God was most absent, he was most present, working out his good purposes, keeping his sure promises. Remember, so remember today, that manger, that cross, and have confidence and joy in your God who keeps his promise to you. Confidence and joy in his Saviour sent into the world. Jesus, God with us. Confidence and joy in all the circumstances of life. For he's come, he's died, he's been risen. Those things will never be undone. And he will come again and save those who are waiting for him. Have confidence and joy in your Saviour, God with us, and give him praise. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that in the richness of our lives, in the good food, in the good gifts, in the good times, you would turn our hearts to our Lord Jesus and that we would know him as the source of all the good we enjoy, that we would know him as the source of peace with you, 
that we would know him as the source of our hope of eternal life, that we would know in knowing him your forgiving, patient grace and your steadfast love. And Father, we pray that if today ours aren't good times, good food, good gifts, we still pray that we would know him and we would be confident in his promise to keep us and in his love to care for us and in his presence to be with us, God with us forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.